0: You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good morning, everybody. Randy Bolander here on the third cup of coffee. Glad to have you with us. We have gone full summer mode in Overland Park, Kansas. It is beautiful outside this morning. Had a great weekend. Celebrated Kelsey's birthday yesterday, which was fun. And uh, earlier in the weekend, I knew it was summertime when I looked out and it was 10, 15 p.m. and my kids were having an all-out water fight war with the other neighbor children. It was like bedtimes have gone out the window and they're just racing around. the exterior of the house, chucking water, and it was just fun. It was uh, fun to watch kids be kids. Let's just put it that way. Anyway, yesterday at the bridge, I talked about the idea of a false prophet and what Peter is talking about in the first and second chapter of 2 Peter. Stay with us. I want to dive into part two of our series on 2 Peter. So if uh, you have your Bibles, go to 2 Peter. Uh, near the end of the first chapter is where we, we ended last week, and we'll get in, into two this week. But we will go somewhere else before we get there, but, but trust me, just go to 2 Peter and park it there. You'll, you'll do fine. Have you, I'm going to ask this question knowing fully the answer if you've been in the church very long. Have you ever gotten a wacky prophetic word? I mean, just a, a prophetic word that you're like, what, what, where, huh, what? And sometimes people get a little bit excited, and they will speak for the Lord things that the Lord himself had never thought of. Um, one of our dear friends, Clyde Miller, is a pastor in Cincinnati, and he was a denominational official for years. Clyde is just a treasure to the kingdom of God. He's... he's Boy, he's got to be in his 80s now. And and if you go to lunch with Clyde, you need a couple hours because he knows everybody in the restaurant. It'll take you 30 minutes to get to your table and another 30 minutes to get out. But he was telling me one time that he was... a denominational official, and he had to go and sort out difficulties when a church had, had issues. It was just a completely thankless job. Every time there was a difficulty, he had to go and sort it out. And there was a church up in Northeast Ohio that the controversy for them was surrounding how they celebrate the birth of, of Jesus and you had very traditionalists and you had others who had other ideas and what it really came down to is some people were angry at others for, for talking about Santa Claus, if you believe it or not. That's what the church was on the brink over, was the existence, not even the existence, but the discussion of Santa Claus. So, Clyde came in to kind of try and settle everybody down and they had a church service Then they were going to have this business meeting afterwards to, to apparently settle the, the Santa Claus controversy. And In the middle of the service, someone in their zeal stands up and announces, Thus saith the Lord, lay off Santa Claus. He's a good man. He does a good work. (laughs) And the Lord's looking out and going, I never said that. Like that wasn't actually on my mind. I I don't care if you play with Santa Claus or not, but that wasn't me. Sometimes people's flesh, they they say things that they mean and throw thus saith the Lord on it at the very beginning. Other times, he will give you a prophetic word of some sort and it just goes over like a lead balloon. You know, it falls flat. Kelsey and I received a very direct word years ago in a large meeting and we were on the front row. And uh, the the person who delivered it, to this day I love, have great respect for, they're they're a a person of, of great faith. But they stood us up, and I remember them saying, I shared this with my wife, and she really said, I probably shouldn't do this publicly, but. Guys, if your wife says, don't say that publicly, that's just, like, that's the Lord right there. That's the word you're looking for. But he felt strongly about it, and he shared it, and it was very directive, and it was, this is what's going to happen in your life, X, Y, Z. And he said, it might might take five or ten years, but... Well, we're 17, 18 years later. It hasn't happened. What do you do with those things? You know, what do you do with those things? Was he wrong? Well, time will tell. But the most important question of all that is if he was wrong, how do I hold my heart in light of being told that and it never coming to pass? Because a whole lot of people have grown disenchanted with what they thought was a word from the Lord when they were really just disenchanted with the people who had shared it. Second Peter 2 opens with this phrase and it says false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. Now some of you read that you maybe are reading ahead getting into second Peter knowing we were going to go here today and you were rubbing your hands together going oh this is great. Finally we're going to deal with some of these wackadoodle prophecies that come out of nowhere and never come to pass. Finally some of these wacky prophets are going to get taken to the woodshed by Peter. There's a a strange joy that we find in things getting set straight. However, that's chapter two and we left some scriptures on the table from from chapter one. So we're gonna go back to that because they all do tie together. And before we get to 2 Peter chapter one, I'm gonna read a passage out of the book of Revelation in how we regard what he calls prophecy in this passage. You don't need to turn there. If it's easy for you, go ahead to Revelation 19. But this is just putting some... Uh, some thought behind what Peter is talking about when he, when he is talking about a word of prophecy in this case. Revelation 19, 6-10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, speaking to John here, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then John speaking says, I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here the angel gives John understanding, and then he rebuffs John because John tries to worship him. He says, no, 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 don't do that. But then he tells him the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This morning, as we go into part two of Second Peter, we're calling this true or false prophetic edition. Now, we left off last week, and Peter was just getting ready to relay a story of sorts about how and why he teaches what he teaches about Jesus, and he gives them a little bit of history and establishes his credentials. So if you're you're in 2 Peter now, we're at the tail end of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, For we were with him on the holy mountain. What is he talking about here? Peter establishes his credentials saying, we're not making this up. We walked with Jesus. We talked with Jesus. We saw all of this. We saw him as a carpenter. We saw him as a carpenter's son. We saw him as a normal man. But we also saw the glory of God descend on him on a mountainside. And we heard the voice of God affirm him. He says, I heard a voice saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And here, Peter references the transfiguration of Jesus. When Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain, and Moses and Elijah appear there with Jesus, and Jesus glows with the full radiance of his father. And Peter, who's trying to figure out what's going on here, thinks maybe this is the new normal. Maybe we're just going to live up here on the mountain. Maybe... Moses and Elijah are gonna live with us and he tells Jesus, I'll tell you what, I'll build us a couple of tiny houses and we'll just stay here. That wasn't Jesus's plan, but God's voice broke into heaven in that setting and God spoke over Jesus. It was this tremendous affection for his son. It's like God wants to clear up any confusion about who his son is. And in Matthew 17, 5, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Now this thing only happened one other time recorded in scripture at Jesus' baptism. At Jesus' baptism, God's voice breaks into heaven, says the same thing. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's literally God shouting, that's my boy. God, in a sense prophesies. He speaks truth to the crowd and to the atmosphere and to anyone who can hear around the earth. Jesus is the fullness of God. So Peter back in, in chapter 1 of, of Second Peter continues in verse 19 and he says, and we have the prophetic word. What's he talking about there? He's talking about Jesus. More fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart." Now Jesus did not spring onto the scene suddenly, like humanity suddenly became aware of him, but he had existed from the beginning of time. He had been prophesied down through the years, and Peter tells them that Jesus is the one who has been prophesied. And in accepting that word and in paying attention to who he is, your hearts would be full of truth. Revelation twenty two sixteen. 16, Jesus says of himself, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He is saying, I am not coming to make your life easier. I am coming to make your life radiant with the truth of who I am. Peter goes on to address that his coming had been prophesied. Second Peter, again, chapter one, now to verses 20 and 21. Knowing that first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You ever been carried along by something? Just got caught up and like you're not even walking, it's just like it's carrying you. I was camping one time and I watched a couple of guys set up a dome tent. And about the time they drove the last stake in the ground that was gonna hold this dome tent, no matter what happened, something happened that they really hadn't planned for. And a wind shear came along and the dome tent, including all of their camping stuff, just went and it was carried along end over end. Wind force one, dome tent zero. And he says here the prophets were carried along, in a sense, in what God was doing. You even wonder if the prophets fully understood everything they were prophesying. I don't think they did. They were carried along. They got bits and pieces, but they didn't fully understand the whole story. They just told a little, can you imagine the frustration of being commanded to speak a message and you don't even understand what the full message is? He says, no, no, just do your part. I'm doing something big here. We love clarity and closure and three points in a summary. But when you look through scripture, almost no one in the middle of the story fully understood the story from beginning to end. And it came down to not what was the prophecy and what did they fully understand. It literally came down just to obedience and speaking the word that they were told to speak. Now, as we get there to the end of chapter one, we've got this understanding of what he's talking about with prophecy and it's not personal prophecy. He's not talking about the guy standing up saying lay off Santa Claus because he's doing a good work. He's not talking about the guy calling somebody out and announcing something or somebody taking somebody aside and delivering a private prophetic word. That's not what he's talking about in this case. Review for a second. We understand that in Revelation, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's what it says there. We understand that Peter is describing God shouting from heaven with the testimony of Jesus. We understand that Peter is speaking of Jesus here as the ultimate prophetic word. And yet when we turn the page and we get to chapter 2 and we read false prophets arose among them, we instantly start interpreting that as people who falsely prophesy personal prophecy to one another. In this case, that's not what he's talking about. Okay? Now those things do happen and I do believe that God speaks through people to other people. But in this sense, that's not what he's concerned about. We don't go, oh good, now he's going to blast the false prophets that prophesied all these crazy things. No, that's not what he's talking about. Peter's warning about false prophets is not in relation to the person who gave you some wacky word. It's his warning about false prophets is in context to those who would misrepresent who Jesus is. In regards to this group that he's calling false prophets, this is the interesting part. If our message and our portrayal of Jesus is not accurate, We are actually who he is talking about. It's like the AARP. You may already be a member. Okay? This passage is not just for our instruction about dealing with other people. This passage is also for our instruction in how we regard the Lord and how we speak about him, how we prophesy the existence of Jesus misrepresenting Jesus is by far the greater travesty than sharing a personal prophetic word with somebody and getting it wrong. It's a way bigger deal. Yes, it is a little dangerous to say, thus saith the Lord, okay? You might want to say, I think the Lord is saying, okay, buy yourself a little hedge room. But even getting that wrong is not as big a deal as misrepresenting Jesus. In fact, the New Testament had a more flexible understanding of personal prophecy than we do. How many of you have heard someone give someone else a prophetic word, it didn't didn't come to pass, or they got it completely wrong, and people will immediately say, well, you know, in the Old Testament, they would have stoned them. They wouldn't have done that in the New Testament. Like, the nature of prophecy in the New Testament is a little bit different. As strange as it seems to us, in the New Testament, prophecies given to individuals about circumstances and events, there seem to be a little more room for error there than we might think there should be. It's why 1 Thessalonians 5, 20, and 21 says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Somebody gives you a personal prophecy, says so test it, weigh it. Don't just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. It's your responsibility to weigh that. The early church records times when established, known, nationally level, whatever you want to call that, prophets who got it right also didn't get it right. There's a story in Acts 11, where Agabus prophesies about a famine that is coming to the land. And the church takes it so seriously that they immediately go into prep mode. Man, they're canning beans, they're buying extra water, they're doing everything they can because they believe this famine is coming. And Agabus got it right. Like it actually happened, prophesied it far in advance. So here, Agabus is this established prophet in their midst, okay, he's he's got a track record. But then you go to Acts 21, verses 10 and 11, while they were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus, Agabus of, of the famine prophecy 10 chapters earlier, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands. And he says, Thus saith the Lord. That's the tricky part. He said, Thus saith the Lord. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the hands of the Gentiles. Paul took Agabus', Agabus prophecy and went, eh, I don't know. I, maybe, maybe not. It's a warning. And he goes anyway to Jerusalem. Now, he was captured to Jerusalem and some, some very dangerous things did happen to him, but it didn't happen this way at all. Like what is described by Agabus? Agabus, it wasn't exactly right. Was it a warning? Sure it was, but Paul felt the freedom to weigh that prophetic word and decide if that is, was, was accurate or not. In the New Testament, a, a prophet may not have a 100% accuracy record. Are they not a prophet? No, they just missed it. What other ministry gift or offering do you expect to get it right 100% of the time? Have you ever had a pastor that gets it right 100% of the time? You do not now. I mean, if this is your home, okay. But for whatever reason, when we think of prophets, we think of Old Testament, we hold them to that standard. Personal prophecy is different. But again, that is not what Peter is teaching about here. What Peter is worked up about is not about somebody giving a prophetic word and missing it. That shouldn't happen, but that also shouldn't rattle a mature Christian. You ought to be able to get past that. What Peter addresses in 2 Peter 2 is not a weird prophetic word, but those who declare the name of Jesus in a way that is less than he deserves. And for all the strange prophetic words that fly around, I am less concerned about them and I am more concerned about the state of the church that often provides an inaccurate description of Jesus to a dying world. That's more dangerous. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, brought them, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So he talks about false prophets and false teachers who will deny Jesus or misrepresent him. When Peter says deny Jesus, he's not talking about them overtly distancing themselves from Jesus Because the false teachers and the prophets needed the idea of Jesus without the actual person of Jesus. They're not repudiating Jesus' existence. They're trying to leverage his fame and make a name for themselves. They want the religious symbolism without the relational obligations. They want the look of devotion without really being bothered with devotion. They want the appearance of being a prophet of god without having the responsibility of actually speaking the true word of jesus there's a new fad among truck owners that i just noticed in the last two years and i don't know if it's because people have had extra time on their hands with with uh covid and they're looking for things to do and maybe it's happened for a long time but I was, if, if you and if you're among one of these please understand I do not know it or i wouldn't have told the story <laughs> but have you have you seen these people who will rig out their all-wheel drive trucks with overland gear okay they they bolt racks onto the back of them and the front of them and a hitch and a, and a, a, a winch on the front and they'll put a tent on the top of the truck because wherever they're going apparently there's not room for a truck and a tent i don't know but they will spend thousands of dollars. There's a guy in my neighborhood's got two of them. And they rig these things out and when they're all ready for their adventure, they you know have 10 gallons of, ge- of really jerry cans on the back of gasoline. Where are you going that there's not a QT? I don't know. But they are totally ready for anything. And they go on adventures to Costco. <laughs> Maybe to Sam's Club. You know, some of these trucks I haven't seen dirt in their lives. It's like, you guys want the appearance of adventure without ever having to sleep on that tent on the roof they want the look of adventure without the actual excitement they want they want the danger they don't want the activity of what they're saying they're doing and there are those that want the look of devotion without the activity of devotion it's what the bible calls having a form of godliness but denying the power of it it's what the world calls posing That's what it means to deny Jesus. It's denying his power, denying him access to the fullness of your life, but keeping the trappings of religion around you, getting in church a couple of times to make yourself feel good, maybe put a couple bucks in the offering plate, maybe not, who knows. You know, just do the bare minimum to feel you're a part of the adventure without ever actually going on an adventure. And in doing that, we misrepresent Jesus to unbelievers. Because they think you can have the adventure just by buying the truck. They think that you can live the life. Just he go a couple of times? And that's, that's, no, that is a misrepresentation. It's actually, you are prophesying falsely about what it means to follow Jesus. Galatians 1.6, Paul writes about this. He says, I'm astonished. That you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to another gospel. He's like, I can't believe after all that you heard and all that you saw, you are now buying into a form of Christianity that is like decaf Jesus. You got the mug. You you know, it's, it's not what you're called to. Our biggest concern on this point is not how Peter thinks we should deal with false prophets. It is how we think that maybe we're in that category sometimes. And we are actually portraying a walk with the Lord that isn't a walk with the Lord at all. The most important words you will speak after confessing Jesus as your Savior will be the words that frame who Jesus is to those who do not know him. Think about it for a second. If all your friends know about Jesus, is what they can perceive from what they know in your life. The prophetic word that you are living out, your life is a prophetic word, takes on grand manifestations. I mean, what that means. This isn't a minor philosophical point. This is eternity of other people's lives. And Paul says, there are those who distort the gospel or make it appear to be something that it is not, and they're false prophets. Don't worry about the weird prophetic word. Worry about are we representing Jesus accurately? False prophets and false teachers deny Jesus. Second thing they do is they appeal to people's sensuality. When I say sensuality, I don't mean just sexuality, but people's enjoyment or personal pleasure. I don't know that there is actually a school of false prophets, but if there is somewhere, I promise you on the very first day, the School of False Prophets, lesson number one is this. Tell people what they want to hear. They'll love you. People tend to gravitate towards messages that appeal to their flesh or their base desires and reject messages that challenge them to make adjustments or change courses. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, he says that many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Much of what people believe about Jesus has been formed by being told what they want to believe rather than what Jesus has revealed about himself. And that doesn't mean that what they believe about Jesus is entirely untrue, but it's not the entire truth. And the partial truth is as dangerous as a lie if there's other information out there. And scripture tells us when there is a time coming, and I would say maybe the time's already here, when people will gladly choose a half-truth over the whole truth if the half-truth is easier. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but they'll have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. What are those teachers teaching that suit their own passions? It's telling them the things they wanna hear. It's appealing to their sensuality. Think about the things people believe about God. What does it really say that they wanna hear? People say things like, you know, Jesus loves us just how we are. Partially true? jesus loves us in our sin he loves us jesus does not love how we are now he made you a certain way and he wired you a certain way and he put characteristics in you that are of him but he is not crazy about some of our activity he does not love that about us if he loved how we were he would have never told the woman caught in adultery go and sin no more He told her, stop what you're doing. Yeah, I don't want you to be stoned by these guys, but go stop what you're doing. I don't don't love that part of what you're doing. I love you. I don't love what you're doing. If he loved how we are, he would have not commended Zacchaeus for returning a bunch of the money he'd stolen. He would have told Zacchaeus, you know, it's not that big a deal. Just tithe on it. It'd be all right. Redeem it. No, he did not love how Zacchaeus was. If he loved how you and I are, he would not have told the rich young ruler The most challenging thing he could have told him: go sell all you have and give to the poor. Jesus knew that would trouble that young man. But he thought it was better to trouble him than to tell him what he wanted to hear because what he wanted to hear would not change his life. If he loved us how we are, he would have never told us in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it." That is a life-altering invitation, even 2,000 years later, and with as full of an understanding of Jesus as anybody in history has ever had, we still find it easy to ignore that because that does not appear to our uh, our sensual nature. And again, I'm not talking just about sexuality, I'm just talking about what feels good. Oh, that's, really? Go surrender everything or come and die? That, you know, can I hang around till you say something I like? It's like, I'm not going to say anything else to you till you do that. And we fall into a trap of telling people half-truths because we're afraid they won't swallow the whole truth. But the half-truth is actually a lie in appealing to people's sensual side or that sense of self-gratification we have made jesus mostly about him accepting our shortcomings rather than him dealing with our shortcomings and making us whole human beings he loves you fully but his vision for your life is for wholeness not for you to struggle along in your sin. Now, because of prophesying about a Jesus who is fine with any kind of behavior that we're engaged in, the church has nearly lost its place of moral authority in our culture. When you talk to people who have very little church background or they're angry at the church or they're they're not following God and you tell them, hey, the scripture says, or the church says, or the Bible says, you know what they say? So what? so what what we we have because historically we've told them what they wanted to hear now we have no ability to tell them what they don't want to hear in terms of sexuality the church has said nothing or has gone the route of uh, condoning and blessing things that are not condoned or blessed in scripture and in doing that has lost its moral authority to speak into sexuality in any area We just gave it up because we didn't tell the whole truth. Now, some of you who hear that and go, okay, I'm glad you said that. Remember that I said that because I'm getting ready to say something you may not be glad I said. We did the same thing with politics on both sides of the spectrum on both sides of the spectrum people have found parts of a platform or an idea that they identify with and it's probably got some element of scripture and they have wholeheartedly bought into that listen if you're following Jesus never challenges your politics you're doing it wrong and i don't care what side of the spectrum you're on it happens on both sides But we have fallen prey to telling people what they wanted to hear and what what, appealed to their sensual side. And in doing so, we have prophesied about a Jesus that even Jesus wouldn't have recognized. Because he looks back on it and says, man, I said a whole bunch of stuff you're not talking about. That whole die to yourself thing? That whole serve to you? you No. We read this. We think he's talking about false prophets that are out there. He goes, no, how are you prophesying about me? Are you speaking about who I really am? This, all, this idea of surrendering our moral authority in the public arena, I'm telling you, it terrifies me. Because short of clarifying our biblical stance, we are affirming practices and lifestyles and ideologies that destroy people's lives. And we will have blood on our hands because we were too squeamish to tell them the truth. And an appealing to cultures, sensual nature, we are surrendering any semblance of prophetic authority in our life. There is a reason we can say the Bible says, and they say, who cares? Because we have compromised on so many issues up until this point. When we quit saying the clear things that scripture says about things like sexuality and about things like public policy and about things about how we regard one another, we lose the right to say the hard things about anything. A faithful prophetic witness will inevitably be called upon to tell people what they do not want to hear, so that those people can be what they could never be if they didn't hear the truth from somebody. It is not unchrist-like to be clear. It is kind and it is faithful to what God has called us to do. The false prophets Peter warned us about, they deny Jesus, they appeal to people's sensual side. And finally, in verse three, they operate out of greed. First Peter 2, 3 starts out and he says, In their greed, these false prophets, they will exploit you with false words. I have just a thought for you. Do you think a fish knows what it means to be wet? I mean, you ever, you ever think a fish just swims around and goes, It's humid in here. No, I don't think a fish has any concept of what it means to be wet. There's water everywhere, it's all they've ever known. A fish never asks for a towel. For a fish, wet is the default setting, okay? They don't know any better, they don't think about it. Wet to a fish is dry to you. That's how we're most comfortable, and when we're out of that setting, then we notice it. It feels like we're a fish, out of water, okay? I propose that in our culture, Greed is so prevalent that we can be in the middle of it and it can be all over us and we not even recognize it because it's such a part of our culture. We've been surrounded by it so long that we don't even recognize when it's on us. Now, on rare occasion, greed is about accessing finances that we're not entitled to. But greed can mean a lot of things. You can build a prestigious career, never amass money, and be motivated by greed the entire time for for fame and for, for acclaim. You can build an influential church and see much good done in that church and still be motivated by greed for being acknowledged. We can be motivated to do good things, but the underlying current of how does this make me look and how does this put me in standing with other people, that's our default setting. That's like water to a fish. It's all around us, and if we're not careful, we reflect it. And in the kingdom of God, we are called to do so much more than we're ever equipped to do, and the only thing we can control is our motivation. So motivation means everything. And he challenges false prophets and says what, what are you motivated by what what even the things you're doing well what are you motivated by what what motivates you This is randy what motivates you randy to meet on zoom for a year and then go i wonder if we could find a dance studio somewhere Maybe we can meet in a dance studio. Be, what motivate? I mean, guys, if we don't check our motivations on stuff, we get so sucked into the default setting of this world, which is greed, as much greed and self, uh, self-grandization and self-protection, all of the things that go totally contrary to the idea of lay down your life and follow me, because it's so around us and we can end up even doing good things out of motivation that's bad, and in doing it, we portray something other than the full Jesus. Now this is heavy this morning. Right? If you're visiting, come back. It's not always like this. Some of you are going, it is always like this. No, but I, I take this so seriously, guys. Why do we do what we do if we are not portraying Jesus, the real Jesus, for who He is? This is for. No- it's not only for nothing. It's actually dangerous. I'm not going to teach through the rest of 2 Peter. You can read what happens to false prophets. It's not pretty. It's bad. I'll just give you the Reader's Digest version. False prophets, bad. I don't want to do the right things or speak partially about him or portray anything other than who he is fully with our lives, with our giving, with our worship. with. When we begin to, as we grow here and we turn the canon and and we quit thinking about, okay, we're just going to meet together. What's outreach look like? All of these things. I want to represent him well, or I'm afraid to represent him. Does that make sense? I want to ask if Zion would come back for a minute. If you have your Bibles, go to Revelation again. We're going to circle back around because I want to pray through a passage. What we did earlier this morning with Daniel is we just prayed and worshiped together. And some of you have never done that. That's a a new thing for you. Which is part of the reason why prayer is boring and worship feels like it should be more entertaining. Those things go together. They go together in Scripture. And so we want to go back to Revelation 19 here before we close. Because more than anything, I want to get to know who he is and represent him well. I don't want to be in this false prophet category and not even know it. Be the fish going, it's wet. Never noticed it was wet before. Some of you, when we say turn to revelation, you twitch a little bit because you've heard so many crazy things. We've got to learn how to love this book. It's the revelation of Jesus. He says at the end of the book, this is what I want to tell you. And he, he sends angels to tell us about himself. So if you have your Bibles, open it again to Revelation 19. As a closing, as a blessing over you, I just want to pray through this. Before we dive into it, it's just going to lead us in... Just anything, just a quick chorus, just to prepare our hearts for this. We love you, Jesus. All my life you have been faithful, sing this, just tune your heart to the Lord this week. And all my life you have been so, so good, good, Jesus. With every breath that I Goodness of God. Sing that again. All my life. Ooh, and all my life, You have been faithful. And all my life, You have been so, so. to be the voice of the great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Father, we lift our hallelujah to you tonight. We lift our voice to you, and we say you are mighty in this place. You are good, Father. Your word says, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus. Father, we ask that we would be counted among those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We lift our voice with those that are invited and we say, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Father, clothe us with linen bright and pure, righteous deeds during our lifetime that clothe us in eternity. And he said, these are the true words of God. And he goes on to say, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, Father, we ask that as a church, as individuals, as the body of Christ, that our testimony of you would be accurate and whole and full and life-giving. That we would call your bride to you, Jesus. That we would declare hallelujah that the Lord God Almighty reigns. That we would call the bride to make herself ready. That we would invite those who do not know you to come into fellowship with you. And what we would portray before you would be the fullness of your glorious Son, Jesus. Give us boldness to speak the whole truth that changes people's lives. And not the half-truth that appeals to them, but serves them with nothing, Jesus. Father, I speak a blessing over the bridge. A blessing to be and to prophesy fully who you are. We counted a privilege, Jesus. We counted a privilege. Let's just stand and sing this one more time. All my life, you've been faithful. life you have been faithful faithful Jesus and all my life you have been so so good Sing of the goodness of God, and we ask you to allow us to walk it out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you need prayer, I'd be happy to pray with you. Grab me afterwards. God bless you.